Welcome to Saga Craft. Myths, fairy tales, legends, stories comfort us, inspire us, and heal us. Please join us as we share stories, both old and new. More than anything, we are open to the story and its unfolding. At times, it may be one story told by one person. At times, it's the same story told through three different voices. In the end, we go where the story takes us, and we invite you to follow. I'm C, a writer, artist, and storyteller. I'm Betsy, a medium and teacher of mystery traditions. I'm Gabriella, an artist and practitioner of folk magic. We, we are, are magical, magical fairy godmothers, godmothers in, in training. training. Today we'll be exploring the world of the familiar in this reality and in another reality that's mirrored to ours. The familiar, the fetch. The animal co-walker. And here are three different takes on that. Want me to start? Okay. So this is my story. Tess's unfamiliar familiar. Tess sobbed quietly in her bed, the sounds muffled by her tear-drenched quilt. Her scalp still smarted from the brisk and somewhat angry hairbrushing that her mother had given her before tucking her under the covers and snapping off the light. Tessa's curly hair always seemed to take the brunt of her mother's anger or disapproval. When her footsteps receded down the stairs, Tessa's tears had begun. She wasn't crying about her hair, though it did still hurt. What had happened earlier that day in the pet store was where her misery began. The worst part of it was that she had been so certain that the little lop-eared rabbit was the pet that she'd been looking for. She'd been searching for a few years. Her mother had told her each time she fell head over heels in love with an animal, a tropical bird or a snake at the pet store, that it was not appropriate for her. The way she said it, with a tight-lipped look of disapproval, made her own disappointment feel so much worse. The pet store owner always looked at Tess with a little worry line between his brows when this happened. She knew he felt sorry for her and would try to comfort her by letting her help with some of the small tasks of maintaining and caring for the animals when Tess was there by herself. He was very careful to be non-committal when Tess would exclaim in rapture over a new arrival. We'll see when your mother comes, he would say kindly. He didn't want to make it any worse for the little girl. He had his suspicions about her mother, but keeping out of people's business is what had kept him in business in this little town. As Tessa's tears continue, the memory of the soft and warm little rabbit body with the extra long ears began to fade. Her dreams of the rabbit hutch and basket filled with doll-sized quilts for the bunny to snuggle in also faded. Eventually, as her tears slowed down, she heard the wind moving through the trees and the bare branches beginning to tap on her bedroom window taps that were very clear now that the leaves had all dropped away. The clouds rushed past in a sky with a nearly full moon, sometimes shading it, then revealing the moon's luminous orbed shape. The branch tapping continued, sometimes random, 
sometimes seeming to be in the pattern of a little song. Sleep, little one, sleep. She could almost hear the wind singing to her. Sleep, sweethearted girl. Your waiting is almost over. Sleep, little one, sleep. The tapping, the wind, the almost heard song lulled Tess into a comfortable drowsiness and then into a dream that began with her wanting to rise up out of her bed and open the window. Without fear or concern, she did this as though it was entirely natural. At the open window, the cool air and windy night prompted her to put on her woolly robe and slippers. She climbed up onto the windowsill, leaned out, and then fell for just a moment. Then, to her delight, she caught the wind, and with her robe billowing just a little, she began to glide as light as thistle down into the night. A tiny part of her knew she was dreaming. The rest of her was in the adventure that this dream offered her. Escaping her room and its layers of loneliness, taking one last look at where she had been at the house with the gabled roof and the few lights still shining in the windows, she turned and looked resolutely forward. She felt free. The wind carried her for some time until she found herself in one of the clouds scudding across the face of the moon. She felt the damp, misty cloud all around her as the wind began twirling her in a big and slowly descending spiral. Wittershins, she thought somewhat giddily. She landed and felt both soft earth and rock beneath her. She could see that she was somewhere she had never been before. The moon, now glowing silver, revealed that there was no little town and no lights at all shining in the eerie, moonlit landscape. A small mountain was before her, trees were all around, and a little winding path shone in the moonlight. She walked along the path, trying to walk as quietly as she could in her slippers. She could feel that she was not alone. A hooting from a nearby tree caused her a stumble and a quick turn to see a great owl looking at her on a branch above her. The owl bobbed to one side and then the other regarding her. Tess felt the owl was satisfied by what it saw when it left its perch on the tree and glided on the path ahead. Tess followed. The owl zigged and zagged and she hurried to keep up and to keep the owl in sight. The owl abruptly swooped to one side of the path and dove into the trees. Tess instinctively followed. She was glad she did, for as soon as she caught her breath after the dash along the path, she could hear footsteps in the night and voices talking. As they came closer, she could hear the separate voices of those speaking, one shrill, one gruff, and one whining. I don't want to go in there, said the whining voice. It's past time that you pulled your own weight, said the gruff voice. You have to, we have to, and you're old enough. Listen to your father, said the shrill voice. It's so dark in there, said the whining voice. Tess could hear the sound of a small rock being kicked roughly off the path. You have to go into the dark to get your eyes used to it, said the gruff voice. You'll be able to see soon enough. We want to find out if you have any of the gifts. It will be a big help to us if you do. 
Think about if you can see gold veins, said the shrill voice. Think what lovely things we can get if you do that. Even silver would be good. Seeing any ores would be good, said the gruff voice. What kind of things could I get, said the whining voice, the first sounds of eagerness now audible in his tone. Tess could see through the shrubs that it was a he, but a he what, she wasn't sure. The three were not much bigger than she and carrying pickaxes slung over their small but burly shoulders. One was clearly an older male, one some kind of a younger female, but the smallest with a whining voice was clearly the youngest and a boy. The moon, which had been clouded a bit, now bloomed clear as the odd trio passed her. She crouched lower in fright as she saw their oddly shaped heads, glowing animal-like eyes, and that the one speaking had very sharp and pointed teeth. She could have sworn that they were greenish in color, or were they gray? It was hard to tell. She was very sure that she didn't want them to see her. She hoped fervently that they did not have an extra sharp sense of smell along with an ability to see in the dark. Just when she feared that they would see her in the moonlight in her green robe, a small sound came from behind them. Meow, came a plaintive cry. Meow. Damn that cat, said the gruff one. I told you to put it away for the night. I didn't have time, whined the boy. The boy turned and gave the small form trotting behind him, attempting to nuzzle his knee, a sharp kick that made the animal fly backwards in the night with a wail of distress. It tumbled into the bushes. Tess nearly leapt out onto the path to go to the cat's aid, but the fury in the female's eyes glaring at the small boy stopped her cold. She crouched down lower, sending out warm thoughts to the cat and hoping that this trio, whom she was beginning to suspect were goblins, would pass her by. The older male cuffed the goblin boy on the side of the head and dragged him forward on the path. The boy, rubbing his ear, cried, I probably can't see nothing now thanks to being hit so hard. You'll see all right, said the shrill voice. We just have to get you into the mine. Something might eat my cat, whined the boy. Serves it right, said the gruff voice. No thanks to you. To Tessa's relief, the strange trio disappeared around a bend in the path. She waited until she could no longer hear their arguing voices before she crept cautiously out of the bushes. Whereas before, she'd been able to hear a little piteous mewling from the animal. Now she could hear nothing. She went back along the path in its direction and stopped a little distance from where she thought it was. I'm so sorry that you were kicked and that you are now left behind. I'll help you, poor little thing. It had sounded young, but looked a little bigger than that. She kept talking softly to it. The owl glided overhead, landing in a nearby tree. You're not helping, she scolded the owl. The cat will be afraid of you. The owl seemed to make a sound that was close to a chuckle. Murmur, she heard. It was a small and cautious sound. She moved in that direction, and there, in the bushes, she saw two slanting green eyes looking up at her. There you are, you beauty, she breathed. 
She extended her hand slowly like the pet store man had taught her. The cat cowered and lowered its body closer to the earth. It's okay, she crooned. It raised its head. She knelt to pick up the cat. As she felt its thin little body, its bony ribs, something melted in her heart. The cat stared into her eyes and it seemed like it asked her a question. Oh yes, she said, yes. The cat stood up. Though its body was small like a young cat, its legs were the longest that she had ever seen, almost twice as long as they should be. Oh dear, you're a goblin cat, she breathed. The cat blinked slowly at her. Never mind, I'm taking you home with me. Would you like that? She asked. The cat blinked again and made a little jump into her arms. She wrapped it up warmly in the front of her robe and set her shoulders in a resolute fashion. I have the feeling that mother is going to have to accept you. She caught sight of the owl solemnly watching her. It bobbed from side to side, as if committing the sight of her with this cat to its memory. It launched itself off the tree and began to fly along the path back in the original direction from which they had come. She jogged along behind. The cat made little mewing sounds from time to time and then became limp in her arms, falling asleep. She began to feel sleepy as well, even though she was moving as fast as she dared. She could feel intense drowsiness coming over her. Maybe we can just rest a little, she thought, once I see the owl on the path for some distance. And that was her last thought before she fell asleep. She awoke with morning sun coming in the window. She felt tired and a little sore in her body. She was just starting to think, what a funny dream, when she heard a soft rumble and felt a weight along her leg. She sat up, startling the dark gray and black brindled creature on the covers, standing on absurdly long legs and hissing. It wasn't looking at her, but beyond her to the door where her mother stood, a mug of weak milky tea in hand. The cat stared at her mother and her mother stared back. The cat's whiskers bunched up as it showed long, sharp teeth. A slow smile began to grow on her mother's face. I told you that we'd know it when we saw it, but I never imagined that your familiar would look like this, she said with a shaky laugh, putting the tea down on the bedside table. She came closer and sat on the bed, not looming over the girl and crouching cat, but gentling herself down beside them both. The cat glared, then turned its head and began to lick its extraordinary front leg. Welcome, cat, she said formally to the creature. At least I assume you're a cat. This is your new home. To her daughter, with a look of pride and love in her eyes, she said, tell me everything from the beginning. My story is about the Benandanti. Nine months before I was born, the village seer Sophia dreamt of me coming into the world. My grandfather used to tell me that all people are born with precious gifts, which are needed in order for communities to thrive. 
Some of these gifts are visible, practical, and useful in life, like a trade or ability to do something really well, just like your father or mother did before. Other people are born with different kinds of gifts, which are closer to the other invisible world and its magic, but also very important to the physical well-being of the waking world. People who could see the future, heal, and talk with the spirits were the holders of these other gifts which were also passed down to them from their fathers and mothers who came before. The woman who dreamt of me was one of those people, and she told my parents about my arrival and the gift that has not been seen for many years. By the time I was born, our view of reality had held only a trace of some of the invisible gifts that came from the other world, and time when people, beasts, and spirits lived together. The gifts that were now openly cherished and recognized were those useful and visible ones, like being a tailor, a cobbler, or a beekeeper. The other gifts, though still recognized by some, people kept quiet about, not wanting everybody to know, especially not those who have turned their hearts against magic. Because of this, fewer and fewer people were born with the unseen gifts, or maybe, if the gifts were there, they were hidden, kept secret. The night Sophia, the seer, dreamt of me was a night of a great storm. Rain, winds, and lightning rattled our village, and nobody slept a wink. Sophia rushed over to my parents' house so she could share the vision from her dream. She didn't know how my family would receive the news, but it was her duty to tell them. She arrived at their cottage drenched in rain, shivering under her thick cloak. Benandanti she whispered while holding my mother's hand and reaching out to touch her belly. My mother gasped. She was brought up remembering the old ways and knew what this word meant. Benandanti, good walker, was a person of great magical power who could fly in their dreams, riding with animal companions to battle malevolent forces that tried to interfere with good weather and with the fertility of the land. Nobody has heard of the Benandanti for many, many years. Nobody living could even remember one. Only stories were left at this time. My father wanted to hear none of this. He was a good church-going man and didn't want this kind of attention or curse on his family. He forbade my mother to speak of this to anybody and threw Lucia out into the rain, calling her a heretic. In those days, words were powerful and dangerous. And even if you spoke of certain things or were accused of something without cause, forever your family had to live with the burden of such a name. Sophia tried to explain to him that good walkers were a huge blessing to the community, that they could negotiate the weather for the entire village to ensure good crops that will last years and years. But he refused to listen. He acted most unusually that night, for he was a gentle and kind man. He made my mother promise that she would keep quiet and ridiculed her for believing such nonsense. Nine months later, I was born. There was a great storm that night. Thunder and rain rattled my parents' small cottage. My grandmother and great-aunt attended to my mother's labor into the early morning hours. At dawn, the sky cleared, my mother's labor ended, and I uttered my first shrieking cry. My night travels are the first memories I have. I remember flying in my sleep in an invisible world above our own while being surrounded by beasts and creatures. I would awaken in a sweat most nights, startled and bewildered when my mother would come to wake me from a restless turning in my cradle. 
She told me I never cried, though, when she would wake me, not the way other children cry with night terrors. But I would stare at her intently, unable to share what I had seen in the other world since I was not able to talk. Not yet. When I was six, I told my parents about one of my night dreams. I had finally had the words to describe it. My father became furious with an anger I've never seen in him before. Fueled with rage and fear, he forbade me to ever speak of my dreams out loud again. A great storm had gathered above us that night, dark and terrifying like the power he had summoned to bind me from talking about my night adventures. I know his true desire was to keep me from night riding, but that was a power nobody could stop. The closest to it was him keeping me quiet, which he succeeded on when he bound my tongue, for I didn't speak at all after that night. Seeing what his rage had done to me and torn by grief, my father fell into a deep sleep from which no one could wake him. A dark cloud hovered in the sky and a great drought came to our village shortly after I spoke of my first night riding. Farmers feared the worst. And the end of a hot summer, lack of rain could cause a devastating loss of crop and likely famine. People went to the closest church and offered what few coins they had to petition for rain. They prayed and sang and worked in the fields harder than ever, but no rain came. My father continued to sleep, which seemed to be devouring something inside him, for he appeared to be withering away day by day, as I watched silently beside my mother, who wept day and night. This was a dark time for us all, and I couldn't help but feel that I had brought it all on, that I was to blame. My grandmother begged the old seer Sophia to please come and look into the other world to find a remedy. The woman, though treated badly by my father, didn't hesitate to come out to our aid. Seeing my father in a state and me bound by guilt and silence, she embraced me and whispered in my ears as I covered her cloak in my tears. Dear one, do not weep and do not fear your gift. It is not too late. But you must ride in your beast form to this battle. You must choose a rider tonight. Commit to her and she will show you all you need to know. She will take you to the white stag. And remember, your father is not who he seems. And by all means, he must be saved. The riders Sophia spoke of were the many beasts I would see during my night journeys. Sometimes I would fly by myself, but I was still small. So I couldn't fly as fast or as far as some of the other creatures. Remembering Sophia's words upon falling asleep, I had gathered all of my intentions and strength and focused them into the thick clouds and movements I was entering in the dream world. This was the first time I had ever felt so aware and conscious in my dream. Usually I let the adventure take me and I would drift in and out of awareness and would be more of an observer in my travels. This time everything was different. The clouds were darker, faster. More creatures and beasts were present, some with weapons I've never seen before. Tonight was like a real battle, and I felt nowhere near ready, but I knew I had to be. A great bear flew close and glared at me intently. Who comes here? I didn't back away. I held my gaze. I have come for my rider, I said. But here I still had a voice. The bear flew aside. And then a wolf came. Who comes here? I have come for my rider, I answered. He moved aside. A giant owl hovered over me with the same question, and I answered for the third time. I have come for my rider. I am ready. And then I saw her, 
a white deer, small like me, but fast, faster than any of the other big beasts. I saw her white heart fire light up from a great distance as my heart lit up into a fierce flame at the same moment. Our eyes met and without hesitation, she galloped across the sky towards me. As she came closer, I realized she was not small, but very big, big enough to devour me if she wanted to. But she didn't devour me, not exactly. She entered my dream form and we became one. And I got much, much bigger, same size as the bears, wolves, and owls by my side. Since we were one, we could share thoughts. She knew I was still scared, for I was not used to those dark clouds or how fast we moved or how our two heartbeats together in a powerful, overwhelming rhythm. We don't have much time, I heard her. We must ride to the white stag and to your father now before it's too late. She flew fiercely through the night sky and headed for our cottage, which was settled at the edge of the woods. Outside of the cottage, other night riders gathered, some in human forms and others in their great beast forms, all gathered around an even bigger creature that appeared to be lying on the forest floor. As I got closer, I saw that it was a great white stag, laying on its side, bound with a thick, dark, cloudy rope, unable to move. Who bound the white stag? I asked, horrified. It was your father. He bound him, said a great wolf. My heart sank. The white stag, the cloud piercer, is the most important of us. He has been lost for many, many years, but we did the work for him as best we could. No matter what weapons we use, we cannot pierce this cloud and release the rain. And now that he is bound, some of our powers are bound too, and we are helpless. The animals and creatures lamented and pointed to the dark, luminous cloud that hung over our village. It was the very cloud that was hoarding water from us, from above our land. I approached the great beast as gently as I could. I was deeply saddened by his fate and by my father's. I knew that there was no coincidence here. My father's illness had connected to this binding and he might have to pay the price, the ultimate price. I didn't know what to do, but I reached out gently to the beast to touch it and began to cry. The white stag turned his head to look at me and I met his gaze a gaze as deep as the sea and as wild as the wind, but so sad, so filled with longing, and so, so familiar. And as I listened to my double heartbeat merged with the white deer that held the same rhythm as the white stags, I realized the white stag was my father. My father was a Benandanti just like me and like his family that came before him and those before them. My father bound himself when he tried to protect me from a gift he was too afraid to carry. The tears that flowed from my eyes as I had learned this truth began to dissolve the ropes so he could move a little. And he wouldn't break my gaze. He grew softer, brighter, lighter, bigger. Suddenly able to move out of the ropes, which were now streams running into the roots of trees and quenching the thirsts of small creatures. And then he stood up. He was truly magnificent stretching across the treetops and into the clouds. Inside him was my father's sleeping form, small and frail, but still alive. Lucia, you must merge with me now. Our heartbeats are aligned as we are of the same lineage. So you are the only one who can. Our strengths combined, we can reach the dark cloud. 
the white deer and I merged with the white stag and all of our forms, including that of my sleeping father, made our way up into the sky, driven by the song of our hearts as they made through. The other creatures rode as well, loaning us the strength to fly higher and higher until we reached the edge of the sky where we pierced the cloud, which released a most luscious thick rain, blessing the parched ground below. The force of the water was so fierce, so powerful, that it knocked me out of my deer form and out of the white stag, and I went flying down, tumbling through the great winds, unable to stop. As I was falling, I saw that my father had finally awakened inside the white stag, and together they could control their direction and speed and were flying fast towards me but I was too scared and tired and lost consciousness. My father's beautiful, proud form inside the white stag reaching for me was the last thing I remember. I was told later that I slept for many days and many nights after that eve. I don't remember any of those dreams for this must have been a sleep without vision, without battles or beasts. This was a resting sleep, a nourishing sleep, a healing sleep I much needed. When I finally awakened, my father was sitting by my side, smiling, his face wet with tears. My dear daughter, my sweet Benandanti, I want to hear about all your dreams. And with great joy, I told him. Next up, working with our familiars. Every creature has its particular gift of animal wisdom one that is intrinsic to its animal body, one with a special divine purpose. In times long since past, I would sit at the feet of my aging master and listen attentively. She would tell tales of familials, animals whose souls would become intertwined with ours to do the sacred healing work. On good days, I would dream of having a familial on my own. I was just a girl and preoccupied with girl things like the color of her coat and the sound of her name. I feared that I would never find my perfect match, the soul with whom I could bond in order to do a greater duty in this fascinating, magical world. I wondered if I would be able to recognize her if I would be able to perceive her bountiful spirit. But when the day came, it was instinctive. I peered through the bars of the cage and knew immediately that she was the animal for me. The light in her eyes shone with a brilliance that I have no words for. It was magical. I could see her particular gift of animal wisdom and garner its divine purpose. Still, for a moment, I doubted myself. I asked the gatekeeper to allow us some time alone to determine if we were truly right for each other, and he did. We went to a small room where we played, romping around on the floor. She was so cute. She engaged me, calling my soul toward her, inviting me to share her life. I had to commit. I named her Sophilia, Greek. Or wisdom helper, and she is just that. Of course, my home was different then. We went through a period of adjustment. The two of us spent all of our time together, and it wasn't all perfect. There were moments in the beginning when we were out of sync, 
moments when our highest selves skipped a beat in the dance of life. Each day we would walk through our neighborhood. At first, when we came to a fork, she would insist on an inferior direction. We would have a momentary standoff. But I would beckon to her, remind her of our mutual commitment, and in time, she would realize the wisdom of my ways and come along. She learned to stay in step. We learned to walk together. It's been 10 years now that we've been doing our spiritual work. When a client arrives, they wait in the lobby as I prayerfully reflect on what might be coming forward for them in this sacred moment. I call upon the directions, the elements, the ancestors, all the spirits to bring forward a perfect, empowering experience for each of us. I reach deep into the heart of the cosmos to divine their highest good, their most graceful path forward, the one that will bring them meaning and fulfillment throughout their lives. It is beautiful, sacred work. When we embark on the healing process, Sophia and I, it is magical. We first journey to the deep origins, the roots of the issue we will address. When necessary, and always with permission, we touch the client, each in our own unique way, tenderly assessing an area of concern. Once found, we slowly, gently untangle it from the web of weird and ask our additional allies, those on the other side of the veil, to sanctify each of the threads that have created the knot we are here to unravel. As I take up my own sacred craft, Sophia does her magic. She calls upon the powers that run through her animal body just as I call on mine. We each contribute to setting the space and intent for a graceful, blessed healing. Together, in deep meditation, we move anything the client may have intentionally or unintentionally, created, accumulated, and or accepted, returning its energy to the cosmos to be reabsorbed into the vital life force that blesses and empowers us all. Next, we journey through space and time, thought and realm, to acquire anything the client may have lost in this or any other life, personally or through their ancestry. Once garnered, we return it to the client and seat it in its rightful home, where it can be in right relationship with all. When we are done, we spend a few minutes cherishing that client, surrounding them in agape, universal love, requesting that our work be a perfect and permanent blessing in perfect protection for each of us, our families, and all our relations. We bow to the phenomenal jewel that holds the heart, soul, and spirit of our client. As often as not, the client weeps tears of poignancy and delight, grief and inspiration. This cleans, clears, and heals the energy body. Finally, we speak of aftercare. We advise that the client relax and indulge in self-nurturing, healing foods, aromatherapy, body work. And finally, when the day is over and there's been a job well done, I ask one last thing of my beautiful familial, and she invariably acquiesces using her particular gift of animal wisdom. 
the one that is intrinsic to her animal body, the one with a special divine purpose, her opposable thumb. She opens the can containing my dinner. Again, I'm struck by the intertwining of our stories. <laughs> I know. I loved both of yours. Yeah, I love them. They are so beautiful. I love both of your stories as well. And I have so much gratitude for the animal kingdom. And I feel like those are the words we have for those beings. But I don't know if that's the appropriate word, which is why I think some of these stories, though they're about animals, they're about so much more than animals. They're about the relationship, which really honors these beings that I feel like in so many ways we don't really deserve as people. Well, maybe some of them we do. I don't know. But the, I just overall, I feel like people don't really deserve animals because they see so much more than we do in many ways. I love both of your stories. And I just, you know, again, I'm just seeing that kind of a triangular configuration of all of these stories together. But as well, I was enjoying see the devotedness it's hard to put words around it but I mean it felt like the devotion the evenness the dedication to the task and then you're letting us know (laughs) whose eyes we were actually hearing the story through and whose voice we were hearing it through and I loved that flipping of the senses I really did and I loved the, in your story, Gabriella, not only the insight into a tradition that maybe isn't super well known, but also the power of what somebody does through fear, but also through love and binding a voice and binding a power and what is not embraced, but what is a necessity for a community when it's bound off becomes like a curse for the community. And so it was very, it was very beautiful to experience the change that your character's father went through in being helped to understand what his role was and then in fully embracing it as well. I really love that. Also, if I can just say too, just like that sense of the Ben and Dante being able to be the weather workers and that clue that the weather was giving all of the time with the storms, et cetera. So that was very well done, very lovely. Thank oh, thank you so much. I, I'm feeling that the story will probably unfold even more over time as I've, I feel like I've been beautifully held hostage by this family for a couple of days and wasn't even sure what the story was going to be until, or I didn't really know the end of the story until just very recently. And then didn't really have the time to write as much and that, but it is perfect as it is in that way that it's supposed to be what it is for now. But I, I really enjoyed being in it. And the Benandanti, they were, that is a real group of people. There was a cult that really believed this and it, throughout Europe and the Balkan area. There were people who did this kind of work and their dream state. And who knows, I think they still might, they, they still must. This is not the kind of thing that would just go away completely. But I, yeah, I really enjoyed the story. And I so very much enjoyed the goblin cat. And I was so committed to sort of, to making sure that it's safe. Though I do feel like it will be a great protector for little Tess. 
Really enjoyed that. What was it like to be with the goblin cat? Oh, it was quite wonderful. I mean, I really adored Tess and I am well aware that there's more to the story of how this goblin cat acclimates to this reality and not the goblin reality. And so I think there will be opportunities to hear more about Tess and her cat and how all of that unfolds. And for you, see, one of the things that I would say is that as I was listening to you describing the work that this pair did, I was thinking, for those who practice soul retrieval, this is a must listen to, to hear how to acclimate oneself. And then the surprise ending of who was the speaker makes it even more appealing, I think. Thank you. I I loved both of yours in the way that they were essentially flying into that other world. That was so beautiful for me in both occasions. And I was completely obsessed with the Ben and Dante to the point of total shivers. And like the feeling that I had never heard the name before, but I had always known the name. Like I really want to hear much, yeah. much more. I also want to hear much more about Tess. And I loved the cat. And I don't know very much about goblins. And I really look forward to learning more about goblins. And again, they were both so beautifully written. I was just stunned with how amazingly beautifully written both of the stories were. And I was fascinated the whole time. And, you know, I'm kind of ADD. I have a hard time paying attention for very long. And you had me. You totally had me through both of them. It was great. I just loved it. I'm so grateful to be here with you both. Thank you so much, C. I'm so grateful to be here with you and with you, Betsy. And I absolutely loved both stories. And C, your story right away really had me at the heart. You know, it had me. Like it really felt like an unfolding of something. Like there were so many layers to what you were describing. And I felt that one of the power of the story was just like the power of a soul retrieval or the power of a healing, of a real healing that happens on so many different levels and in so many places. It's that power of staying in the moment and the power of being present with it every step of the way that makes it a success and makes it sacred. And with the observer, though, I thought it was a being of that kind. I thought it was an animal, but I wasn't sure. I didn't know what from what world this animal came from. It was the ability of this being to hold the moment and use senses and levels of awareness that are probably outside of what we would normally see that are most important in this kind of a process. So I was really grateful for that. And I agree with Betsy. It's a must here. It's it's a must here for anybody that does healing work and especially anybody that lives with animals and does healing work, because I feel like there's another layer to it when other beings like that share your home, they will let you know a lot about everything ahead of time and during that time. So it was beautifully woven together. And lovely to hear the familiar's perception of the work and the dedication to the work and the single-pointed focused awareness of the work that actually is very humbling. As a practitioner of Soul Retrieval, that's very humbling to hear. and also very inspiring. So thank you. I love the owl in your story, Betsy. I really love the owl. 
So we all had animals that crossed over into each other's stories. Right. And then we shared a name. We're and we proud. shared a name. Right. Yeah. Well, and Sophia didn't end up. She had a different name at the beginning of the story. And today she said, no, I am Sophia the seer. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things I enjoyed in getting to meet Tess was how she just went with the dream, which was more than a dream. And I'm just wondering how many children are doing just that, just as in your story. I would think many. Many. And I think many are not able to really articulate what they're seeing. And by the time they do, I would hope in some circumstances, if not most, those stories would be cherished and appreciated and taken for what they are. And I think in many others, they're probably dismissed or quieted. So where do they go? It would be my hope that for those listening to these stories, that you might remember some of the dreams you had when you were a child. Yeah. Just to wonder, what exactly were those dreams? Absolutely. And even if we're dreaming now, some of our dreams, if we really go with it, become more than that. Because mm -hmm. I feel like if in the dream we think to ourselves, I'm just going to go with this. This is great. It's no longer a dream, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, being able to track those passages into the other worlds, into the other realities. And dreams are, you know, definitely one of the doorways, but not the only doorway. I'm excited about the many allies that come to our aid. Sometimes they might question our, our commitment to the dream, making sure that we are really who we are and that we can be an ally to them. I love that. I love the working in the dream world. I think that I will concentrate more on the ways I work in my dream world this week. I might spend some time thinking about what powers have not been written about or what gifts have not been written about that might've been lost in time. What would it look like if we suddenly had access to some of those old forgotten tales? And I think for me, and I am a Capricorn, so this makes sense for me, but I think of what are we designed for? You know, what, what gifts have been given to us that may seem unusual in current circumstances, but nevertheless could actually be helpful in current circumstances. And if we embrace that and sort of went with it, then what would happen then? I have a lot of curiosity about that. Mm -hmm. I think those beautiful gifts that you were talking about in your story, Gabriella, are things that are present in every family, in every family system. Some forgotten, some remembered for a time, but maybe shelved. And so maybe for listeners, they might be thinking, hmm. If I went and looked at what's on the family shelves, what would I find that might be there as a gift that could be part of my life? And be a help in these times too. Right. That's absolutely lovely. <laughs> I want to look at my own family shelves and see, oh, what got put up there and forgotten about? Oh, what, got, what got hidden? Yeah. 
Yeah, I just keep thinking that mine would need to be dusted. I'm going to need to dust <laughs> off that cap first. <laughs> then start going through the box. Yeah. But it is, yeah, it is intriguing. And I do love that work. And I find it totally fascinating the way the stories fit together. Well, the familiars are unfamiliar to those listening. You might just look into them and see what's there for you. And special thanks to the fantastic Zoe Magic for her phenomenal editing skills.